The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very warm welcome to Squawkbox this morning with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and Jeff Cutmore. And these are your headlines. Credit Suisse is reportedly preparing to fire both its head of risk and its investment bank chief as the Swiss lender looks to set up an update for investors on the mounting losses relating to Arkegos and Greensill. More records on Wall Street as the Dow and the S&P close at new highs buoyed by strong jobs growth and a spike in services activity. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announces the return of the U.S. to the world stage, pivoting away from the Trump administration and reaffirming its global priorities. America first must never mean America alone. For in today's world, no country alone can suitably provide a strong and sustainable economy for its people. China's key services sector continues to recover, with a private survey showing activity at its highest level since December, as hiring picks up and confidence increases. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson urges Brits to hold off on booking summer holidays, saying a ban on travel may not be lifted next month. We don't want to see the virus being re-imported into this country uh, from abroad. Uh, plainly, there is a surge in other parts of the, of the world, and we have to be, to be mindful of that. Right, a lot of spec. Good morning to you. Lot of, good morning, Karen. A lot of speculation around what is set to break around Credit Suisse. At the moment, we only have uh, proposals regarding the annual general meeting and what is being proposed there. There is, as we said in our headlines, uh, speculation rife about two senior executives uh, and whether they will have a role at the bank going forward. So let's just get some of the flashes that are. Uh, hitting the wires on Credit Suisse out at the moment. And the Board of Directors announced adjusted proposals for the meeting, as well as an update to the 2020 compensation report and changes to the executive board of Credit Suisse. So there is a big hint there that there is more to come in the statement. Uh, amending its proposal on the distribution of dividends and withdrawing its proposals on variable compensation of the executive board as well. Uh, they're proposing that the chairman of the board uh, will waive his chair fee of 1.5 million, which would have been awarded to him at the end of the uh, uh, 2020 AGM to the 2021 AGM period as well. Right. Uh, let's have a look now. There's more details uh, hitting the wires uh, about launching investigations. They've launched two investigations to be carried out by two or by carried out by external parties into supply chain finance matter and into significant U.S based hedge fund matter. Arkegos and Greensill are the point there as well. Uh, they're going to focus not only on the direct issues of boarding, but also reflect on the broader consequences and lessons learned. Um, 
the uh, new CEO. We have got a new CEO of the investment bank as well. And it looks like we have got the announcement regarding Lara Warner as well. Just to give you a bit of flesh on those, Karen's been pouring through these as well. Lara Warner, who is chief risk and compliance officer, is stepping down from her role on the executive board. Uh, Christian Meisner. Meisner is going to be appointed the CEO of the investment bank. Uh, and member of the executive board as well. So you've got Brian Chin, as expected, the CEO of the Investment Bank, stepping down from his role. You've got Lara Warner stepping down from this role that was created by Thomas Gottstein as well. And you have Joachim Urschlin, uh, will be appointed chief risk officer and member of the executive board. Thomas Grutzer appointed internal head, global head of compliance, effective the 6th of April 2021. Uh, the question remains, uh, is this enough and should Gottstein resign himself, given the fact that these two were his appointees, their, well, their roles, expanded roles, were on his watch, were part of his review as well. Um, that is my question this morning. I think it's a, the question to be asking right now, and just a line two on that dividend as well, that uh, they have proposed to distribute a reduced ordinary total dividend of uh, 0.10 Swissy gross per registered share. I mean, we've seen an extraordinary turn of events around Credit Suisse from one of the best starts they've had in many years to this debacle that's unfolded around two major exposures. And uh, you've clearly got two names here, a direct portfolio uh, in charge of risk, you've got to say, and the other side on the investment bank. So the buck has really stopped with those two executives. But should it go a little bit higher up? And you may recall we've had a lot of track record on the, these uh, different stories unfolding at Credit Suisse. They've had problems before under different leadership. You've seen questions asked then about whether the right controls were in place. And we did see a restructure, don't forget, under Thomas Gottstein and whether that restructure was right at this point and whether there was enough oversight of the various exposures at the bank. But, but isn't this... The most damning line here as well. I mean, Jeff's desperate to come in on this one and we'll get him in as well. The fact that you have now Joachim Urschlin is going to be the interim risk officer and Thomas Grötzer is going to be the interim global head of compliance. Well, wasn't I, Thomas Gottstein, Jeff, who put in Lara Warner as the head of both of those functions? And, and surely that happened on his watch. Now we're splitting those functions up again, it appears, on an interim basis. Surely that is an indictment of the overall strategy of the current CEO. Well, perhaps uh, even an indictment of the overall structure of the business at the moment. Steve, you know, we long had a conversation around the desks about uh, whether some of these institutions are becoming too unwieldy to manage, particularly where you've got uh, different departments operating in different geographies and different market structures. Uh, and to pick up Karen's point, yeah, it's been a terrific start for the investment banks, but it's been a terrific start for all of the investment banks. And I think we've got to separate the cycle from the institutions. And we, we've been talking to this bank uh, for a long time over the years, and it just seems that it institutionally is unable to uh, dodge a punch. Um, you know, you, you, let me just think about this. You've got the spying scandal. You've got the Greensill scandal. They were fined by the FSA. They were fined by the SEC. Uh, they were uh, talked to about money laundering uh, with regard to a, a Bulgar in connection with the Bulgarian case last year. Um, and here we are coming into what was supposed to be a, a, a cleaning of the clocks and a uh, an institutional refresh for Credit Suisse, yet again discussing a, a couple of stories that, that are going to have a, a, a longer 
uh, tale in terms of the reputational damage for this bank. I mean, it's it's very unfortunate. But at some point, you have to ask yourself whether a single CEO at this stage with the support of a board is doing a sufficiently good job to uh, clear out uh, what appears to be at, at this point something much more deep rooted in the culture of the institution. I'm sad to say it, but that's what it feels like every time we get another one of these scandals every uh, six months or so. Yeah, and, and look, there's some more numbers here hitting the wire. I mean, absolutely everything you both have said. I just want to just go through a couple more numbers that are hitting the wires here as well, uh, and we can expand this conversation out again. Um, the failure as related to the... Uh, excuse me a second. I just lost the actual number itself. OK, so uh, Credit Suisse says, whilst our financial results are still subject to detailed finan- finalisation and review, we would expect to have a pre-tax loss. So despite everything you and Karen were saying about how what a great start it's been for investment banks in the year, they're now talking about a pre-tax loss in the first quarter of 2021 of 9%. 100 million Swissy. They will include a charge of 4.4 billion Swissy in respect of the failure by a US hedge fund, US based hedge fund to meet its margin commitments as we announced on March 29th as well. In terms of our capital position, uh, while there is also subject to usual end period finalization, etc., etc., we expect the CET1 ratio. Uh, for the first quarter to be at least 12%. Regard to leverage, we expect our tier one leverage ratio to be at least 5.4%. Um, and our... CET1 leverage ratio to be at least 3.7%. At the end of the first quarter, our liquidity position remains strong uh, with HQLA balance expected to exceed 200 billion US dollars and group liquidity coverage ratio to exceed 200%. So clearly the bank has decided it needs to uh, expand on the numbers because as we said last week, until the market knows the numbers, they will not draw a line in the declines on the shares. And I'll just say one thing as well. Uh, We've gone through dozens of these cases over the years as well. And I've said the same thing time and time again. And my dismay has been that once again, risk managers have been overruled by the investment bankers who just want the deal, who just want the business as well, and are worried about others on Wall Street getting the deal. So my question is not just about Credit Suisse. It is about the greed in the entire industry and how and how long are these uh, situations going to arise where risk managers are overruled or ignored. And if those risk managers weren't overruled and ignored and they think their risk model is right, how can that possibly be the case? You're right to touch on culture. We've been talking about this for many years uh, on the back of the last crisis, the last financial crisis, where the much had changed in the industry and we're still seeing problems. And I think what went down behind the scenes is now the subject to investigation. You've got two separate investigations carried out by external parties now. But, you know, to Jeff po- Jeff's point before about the series of scandals, yet another investigation where the experts are called in to rake over what went wrong, you know, going back again to, to 2016 when you did see issues around the liquid trades. The problem then at the time, Tijan Tian, the former CEO, was saying there was an issue with the bank's systems and trading limits, but then the chairman at the time was calling out there was a problem with the way uh, assets were valued, traded and managed. So perhaps some of these issues have still not been addressed. It'll be interesting to see what the excuse is this time around, Jeff. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there are a few other places that we need to look as we continue to watch the reverberations around this story. One, I think, is Finmar, the Swiss regulator, because even as we document every one of these scandals associated uh, with these banks, um, surely the regulator has to uh, take a good look at themselves in the mirror, the national regulator, and ask, are they sufficiently on point to make sure that institutionally this organization is headed in the right direction. And the second place, and this one is still unfolding, and I have more questions than answers, and I'm sure you both do as well. Where do we go next on this Archegos story? Because every time we see a new revelation around this, it it seems that there is still a job of work to be done to unwind the trades. And we've gone from talking about tens of billions of potential exposure here to, as I was reading over the weekend, um, hundreds of billions of dollars of potential exposure. So it seems to me as we watched some of those media stocks uh, down again as we ran into the Easter weekend, there is perhaps evidence that there are still positions that are as of yet unwound and that there will be further consequences for other players around this Archegos story. So a couple of um, very, very difficult issues, I think, for the markets to deal with, even as, of course, as you all know, the economic data that we've been focused in coming into the weekend and this morning, both in China and in the United States, increasingly looks as though we are on the verge of a, of a pickup in a new economic cycle. So while we look at the economics, the markets are much more troubling. Yeah, and it goes without saying, thank you, Jeff, and it goes without saying that we would welcome at any stage the senior management of Credit Suisse, including Thomas Gottsland himself, uh, to come on this channel and explain this position uh, from their point of view, of course. And if we've missed anything or you think we're being too harsh on Credit Suisse or the industry, we would welcome your input so you have an open invitation to our friends in the Credit Suisse Communications Department, who I know are watching the show at the moment. Please get on board to your bosses and tell them we will interview them anytime, any place. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for a minimum global corporation tax rate in a bid to create a more level playing field. Yellen made the comments ahead of this week's IMF and World Bank spring meeting as she pledged greater cooperation with America's allies. Another consequence of an interconnected world has been a 30-year race to the bottom on corporate tax rates. Competitiveness is about more than how U.S. headquarters companies headquartered companies fare against other companies in global merger and acquisition bids. It's about making sure that governments have stable tax systems that raise sufficient revenue to invest in essential public goods and respond to crises. Well, the World Bank President David Malpass uh, weighed in on Yellen's comments, uh, telling CNBC in a first on interview that the world is starting to move on corporate taxes. For development, taxes matter a lot. Incentives matter. Uh, the world is shifting a lot on international taxation because of digital, the 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 uh, the social media taxation, the corporate taxes on those. That's a big OECD topic. That'll be uh, a topic of the G20 on 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 Wednesday uh, when it meets. Uh, and there, uh, so I I I want to say taxes matter to development. And it's important that the world get it right. That's cross-border taxes, subsidies, 
revenue mobilization, the royalties on, on exports, all, all of that matters a lot. Now, that is an incredibly important story, and I know we're going to circle back to that. So we'll put on hold that conversation. But I think we do need to talk about what Janet Yellen is suggesting here, because it potentially has massive ramifications, particularly for smaller countries like Ireland that have tried to use uh, tax competitiveness and tax arbitrage as a way of restoring their own um, uh, heavily indebted uh, government balance sheets. But let's move on and let's talk about some of that stronger economic uh, activity data. Uh, The U.S. services sector number rose to a record high in March as states began to unwind lockdown restrictions and the ongoing vaccine rollout. The ISM non-manufacturing index hit 63.7, which was well above the forecast for 59. And jobs growth across America grew at its quickest rate since last Last summer, as March's non-farm payrolls data comfortably beat expectations, a hiring surge in the hospitality and construction sectors saw 916,000 jobs added to the economy as the unemployment rate fell to 6%. Well, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester hailed the strong jobs report, but told CNBC the Fed's loose policy will be maintained. We've said that we're going to continue at least at 80 billion per month on treasuries and 40 billion per month increases in agency MBS until substantial further progress on our goals have been made. We did get that nice employer report, but as I said, we're still almost eight and a half million jobs below where we were, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit. So again, we just need to see more progress. I like to point out to people who say, "Wow, the economy is really resilient." There, it, it had a lot of help from fiscal policy, I think we need to be, um, you know, very deliberately patient um, in our approach to monetary policy. Well, let's take a look at the impact on markets. Uh, We've certainly seen uh, investors focus on many of the positives that have started up this trading week, that jobs report uh, that uh, handover from Friday, but uh, not to mention some of the latest data as well. It wasn't a bit mixed yesterday. The services number, we saw that surge to a record high in March, although offset by a weaker print that we saw on the US-made goods. Uh, Those new orders were actually uh, falling back as we saw unseasonably cold weather. So mixed report card in the latest data, but investors is very much focusing on the very strong run that we had on the back of the the jobs numbers. And you could see records for the Dow and the S&P by the the finish of these markets ticking high, about 33,500 on the Dow. And you can see about uh, 4,077 on the S&P 500, a bounce of more than 1%. Playing ball too, the technology components, you've got to say the Nasdaq was uh, one of the strongest trades, still off its records. But don't forget that we are seeing this dual trade around the recovery the reopening of economies theme, as well as technology now. So a positive catalyst in the various components of the market. I want to take you to Treasuries. Investors uh, saw a lot of pauses for that U.S. 10-year Treasury yield to run higher on the back of the jobs report. The fact that it, it just cooled off a little bit in the last 24 hours was noted, and that was also a positive backdrop for U.S. equities. A uh, quick look at the dollar. This is how we're trading. A uh, fairly significant fall versus the euro in the overnight session. Euro is trying to claw back some of those, uh, the, the dollar rather, clawing back some of those losses. 118 at this stage is what we're watching. 139 where sterling is perched at this point. And a quick look at uh, how 
how we are trading on the oil trades this morning. WTI and Brent both in the green, uh, seven tenths higher on the WTI price and uh, just about $59. A quick look at those Asian markets as well. This is how we started out the trading week. We've got uh, Shanghai and Japan both trading a little bit weaker, but some gains for the South Korean Cosby and in Australia, the ASX has bounced one of the stronger trades. Uh, we didn't get any move from the Reserve Bank of Australia as expected, leaving the cash rate unchanged at a record low of 0.1%. The only calls, uh, this is the picture for European markets this morning. We do look a little bit soggy at the start, uh, expecting a bit of a peel back at this stage, uh, which is in contrast to some of the green that we've witnessed in the United States and uh, those US futures as a result. Let's see how we're setting up for that trading session. Perhaps this is why the direction is looking just a little bit weak at this stage. We've got so far 80 odd points off at Dow Jones futures, indicating a slightly weaker start. Which is extraordinary given where we were on those US markets uh, yesterday. And of course, the extraordinary data which you've been highlighting, which we'll come back to as well. Well, coming up on the show, China's services sector shows signs of recovery as hiring picks up. We'll bring you some details coming up next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. So we've got some key data from China on the uh, um, services side. Let's have a look at this. The key services sector continued to recover in March. The Chinese services PMI rising to 54.3. That is the highest level since December. Uh, and Sam, that would appear to suggest now that the Chinese post-pandemic recovery is broadening out into the consumer space. Good morning to you, Jeff. Yep, that's absolutely right. This is largely down to this improving domestic demand. So this pent up demand locally, particularly after the Lunar New Year holiday period when things typically do slow down, but also uh, as the weather is warming up. Now, of course, this survey does look at these smaller and private firms in China, which have been harder hit by this pandemic, but it was largely consistent with those official numbers that we got out last week, which looks at the big and state owned firms. And what that suggests, as Jeff pointed out there, was that consumer confidence is coming back, particularly after that spike in cases at the start of the year. So people going out, spending their money as the fear factor has subsided. Now, uh, employment jumped back into positive territory, returning to growth uh, as businesses hired more workers. That's important because the government has made jobs a big focus this year. But the survey still said it wasn't enough to support the influx of new orders, which actually grew at a faster rate. But uh, while we did see uh, some improvement there, rising input costs uh, and output prices are still weighing, really adding to inflationary pressures. So costs for firms continued to grow uh, when it came to things like raw materials, energy and also labour costs. And because of that, companies raised their, raised their prices for an eight straight months. New export orders uh, also uh, fell slightly. Some companies noting the pandemic is still weighing on those overseas order, which does suggest that this is largely a domestic demand fueled recovery. And uh, those, that data we saw is being domestically pushed. Guys, back to you. 
Sam, thank you so much for that. Well, let's get some more comment. Ginny Yan joins us, Chief Economist at ICBC Standard Bank. Uh, and Ginny, the feature of the data over the last few months has been that it's been very uneven. We've seen, as Sam pointed out, this very strong uplift in the state-owned enterprises and the larger businesses supported by the government. But maybe private sector manufacturing has lagged behind somewhat. Do we see evidence now in these more recent Chaishin uh, series of data that actually the recovery is broadening out into the private sector and the smaller businesses? Well, uh, the data we got last week, actually, both the official and unofficial, is telling us quite different mixed messages and mixed signals. And that is because the Taishin unofficial PMI actually said that manufacturing performed less well than expected. So, of course, as we said, the services sector definitely both confirm, both sets of PMI do confirm a pickup. And what I would say on that is that consumption hasn't yet fully recovered. I would say that the localized restrictions um, have started to be lifted after Chinese New Year. So that is really playing catch up. What we've seen uh, during the post-pandemic months is that consumption has been a laggard when it comes to growth um, uh, and growth contribution to GDP. So we still need to wait further data to see um, a pickup in consumption. One good sign is uh, some leading indicators, particularly uh, some of the high-frequency data. This morning, for example, we saw property and also excavator sales starting to pick up once again and earlier than last year. Last year, we saw uh, some of these data pick up in a second quarter. Um, but this year, um, straight after Chinese New Year, we see um, sales and excavators starting to, to pick up once again, suggesting that project start um, and confidence, as we suggested again, uh, already, is starting to recover. But I would really also uh, really say an importance on how much a PBOC, the central bank, is cautioning uh, against uh, some financial uh, market risks there, so asset bubbles. Um, So I think really to balance out the easy monetary policy, accommodative monetary policy, there will still be warning signs and alarm bells when it comes to uh, monetary policymakers being very concerned about that pace of debt growth. Which is very interesting because at the moment, I think the markets are very focused on the stimulus that the US is providing, uh, which does increasingly suggest the US may be the key and only uh, driver of uh, global growth uh, through this next cycle. Uh, Do you get the sense then from those uh, PBOC comments and statements that the Chinese government is not actually interested in providing further uh, monetary stimulus at this stage. I don't think any further stimulus will be on the cards at all. If anything, there will be some temptation to exit the current accommodative uh, monetary policy. Um, we might not get that for at least a few months or at least until data proves that growth momentum is continuing uh, to, to really pick up um, because um, the PBOC really doesn't want to exit to get accommodative policy prematurely, especially as global rates remain very low. And as you've heard already in the US, in Europe, 
rates are likely to remain low for a very long time yet. So clearly, the difference between China and US is that although China's GDP is starting to be uh, uh, really dominated uh, by consumption, it is still not yet consumption-led in the same way that many Western economies are. And that is a worry. Will consumption be able to continue to lift growth in the coming months after that initial uh, industrial investment uh, growth have started to run out of steam. And of course, as I've said, that caution against overlending by banks, for example, and of course, uh, the, the uh, local government debt issuance, these special debt quotas given to local governments, will that be piling up debt unnecessarily and, uh, of course, uh, producing some more problems down the line. That is a question for the central bank. Virginia, as we take a look at some of the confidence figures coming through in this survey, uh, the fact that the services firms are highly optimistic about the year ahead, expectations at the highest level since 2011, there's a, a clear focus on the recovery on the back of COVID. But what about international relationships at this point? I mean, there's still a huge uncertainty around the US-China relationship and whether there's a reset at this point. How could that have a potential uplift or damaging impact uh, depending on the next turn of events from here? I think without a doubt, the international uh, uncertainties is the biggest worry for many domestic players. And of course, we've been playing this theme of domestic production, domestic consumption. And that's what's been continuing to lift the recovery story in China, the dependence, um, not really on the export sector anymore, but for the supply chains in China still to be a dominant one globally. So of course, regional sales have been good. So of course, we continue to engage Get, uh, quite strong export data as well. Um, but uh, continued relationships with the rest of the world probably will continue. China is not going to overnight become, uh, you know, not an important supply chain, particularly in manufactured goods, machinery increasingly, and increasingly renewable sector. We're forgetting, for, uh, for example, that China is going up the value curve. So therefore, that domestic external uh, picture will continue to, to start to, to play an important role. So whilst that international uncertainty is uh, becoming obviously an increasing concern, really about how to factor in pricing, for example, and also how to hedge against some of those uh, 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 noises coming out from, from market. Um, but that said, uh, certainly all of the sectors uh, dependent on external demand are still doing very well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.